We come to a passage today that contains some of our community's favourite texts. There's verse 1, judge not and you be not judged. Verse 5, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 6, don't throw your pearls before swine as the way in which the community remembers it. Or verse 7, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. Or verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, the great golden rule. Now, some only Bible readers would know, but some have found their way into common conversation. People use it who know nothing of the Bible. In fact, they don't even know that they're alluding to the Bible, let alone quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. It's just one of those phrases they use, judge not that you be not judged, without knowing that it's Jesus who taught such a thing. But most people, when they do quote these, even Bible readers, let alone the outsiders, don't pay careful attention to these sayings in their context and so often misquote them. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 12 have three commandments that I want us to look at today. Verse 1, judge not that ye be not judged. And then verse 7, Seek, ask, and it'll be open to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. I mean, that's three commands, but it's really one and the same command said the three different ways. And then the third one is the one in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, firstly then, the command that comes with the warning. It's a command that is a warning. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, this is indeed one of society's most popular commandments today. For in a society that prides itself in its multicultural tolerance, in its age of moral relativism, this is a very popular commandment. Do not judge other people. In fact, making judgments about other people is almost the cardinal sin in modern Sydney. But of course, it only requires reading the rest of the verse, let alone the next, that verse in its context of the next few verses, to realise that Jesus is not teaching, make no judgments, or what most modern Australians mean by it, that there are no judgments to be made. For notice the reason Jesus gives for the warning against judging. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. It's not that judging is the absolute no or no-no of moral behaviour. It's the way you judge sets yourself up to be judged. Do not judge in order not to be judged, because you will be judged on the same basis of the judgment you make. And the word judge can mean two quite different things. It can mean discrimination. It can mean condemnation. And these two words, both are positive and negative, but they are very different. So to judge these people as in greater need than another group of people is discrimination. Whereas to judge these people as being worthy of prison is condemnation. Both judgments, but very different judgments. Discrimination can be positive. 
he's a person of discriminating taste. Or affirmative action, where this person's this person has a particular disability and therefore we will help them by doing extra things for them. That's discrimination, that's judging. But discrimination can be negative. That is showing unfair favouritism to one group of people or being prejudiced about a group of people. That's a discrimination that's negative. Similarly, condemnation can be proper if you're on the judge or if you're on the jury in a court of law, you have to make judgment. That's what it's about. That's what you're there for. It can be improper if you're taking to yourself God's role in making judgments about other people. The command of Jesus is not, do not make any judgments, for that would be a silly commandment. There are times when it's right to make judgments, as there are times when it's wrong to make judgments. The command of Jesus is a warning about judging. The way you judge others is how you are going to be judged. The standards you require of them will be the standards that you yourself must meet. For with the judgment, verse 2, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now that raises two mistakes about judgment hypocrisy and stupidity. The hypocrisy involved in judgment is to see the speck in your brother's eye and miss the log in your own eye. This comes when we set ourselves up to be God, judging and condemning others. And the humorous picture that Jesus uses with the judge with a log in his eye, as if that were even vaguely possible, appeals to us for we know it's true. It's so easy to find fault with others over minutia, over a speck, and at the same time excuse ourselves of major glaring faults. That's just so easy to do. You see it in other people's comments, it's important to see it in your own. As we wish to be judged is how we should judge. We don't want people relating to us by finding minor faults, we do wish people would see their own obvious errors before they were so quick to criticise. So we should beware of our own fault-finding and finger-pointing. Rather, we should look to ourselves and find fault here rather than look to each other in order to find fault there. Hypocrisy. It's fairly strong. Someone who has recently complained about the, the inappropriateness of of, of tweeting and sending messages around the world has been caught out himself tweeting and sending inappropriate messages. Hypocrisy is so easy to do. But on the other hand, there is a stupidity that is sometimes exercised in judgments when people give pearls to pigs or holy things to dogs. It's not that we're supposed to think of people as if they're pigs or dogs but that giving them precious things is as silly as giving precious things to pigs or to dogs. There's a time to speak and there's a time to remain silent. And when the recipient is not listening to you, when the hearer will not be persuaded by anything you say, when rather they listen to you just to store up venom with which to attack you further, well, it's time to keep quiet. 
Leave the valuables in your pocket. You're not advancing anything anyway. So often we get caught in an argument, don't we? And we get so wound up in the argument and so keen to vindicate our point of view and to defend ourselves that we keep speaking when all that's happening in the argument is that they are letting you speak while they store up for themselves their next retort to you. And there's actually no conversation taking place. There's just two people talking in turns at cross purposes. And you need to know there's a time stop. I met a Muslim student some time ago and was discussing with him with the claims of the Quran and the Bible. Week by week we we met. But he wasn't listening nor engaging in the discussion. He was collecting information to train Muslim evangelists. And when I found out that, I ceased the discussions with him. Now, I'm not saying that he was a dog or a pig. I'm not... I'm just saying there was no point sharing the truth with him for he wasn't interested in the truth, he was interested in collecting ammunition in order to shoot Christians. Intellectually, academically, he wasn't a violent man as far as I know. But you see, that requires a judgment, doesn't it? And a judgment call. Would I ever listen to somebody to gain information to use against them later? Well, yeah, I've done that. I know about you, but I confess that I have done that. And what should the person have done to me? Said nothing. That's what they should have done. For I was treating them inappropriately. I was pretending to listen to them to find out the truth, when in fact what I was doing was listening to them so as to beat them over the head later. That actually is a certain hypocrisy, isn't it? That's not being fair, that's not being true. And what would I want them to do? I'd want them to say, Philip, you're not listening, you're not being fair, you're not being true, I'm not going to tell you any more as long as you listen like that. And as I wish to be treated, so I should treat others. But you see how that requires judgment, doesn't it? Of a sort. Not condemnation, but judgment, discernment. Would I ever listen to somebody to gain information? Of course. So I should treat people rightly. It's how you treat a spy. How would you treat a spy? Tell them nothing is the answer to that. Loose lips sink ships, was the great saying in the Second World War. And with good reason. There's a time to say nothing. That is making right and sensible judgment instead of stupid judgments. Remember King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20. How he boasted to the envoys of Babylon about his wealth and his treasures. In fact, he invited them in and he showed them all his wealth and all his treasures. And so he brought upon his kingdom the Babylonian conquest. Because when they went home, they told the Babylonian king what was there in Jerusalem and it was easy to take and worth taking and the rest is history. What a silly man to reveal his treasures to his potential enemies. (laughs) Very silly, isn't it? So avoid hypocrisy, avoid stupidity, both of which require making judgments. But the way you judge is the way you will be judged. So, much for the command for, with a warning. Next, there's a command that is a promise. 
For we read in verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Now this is a command not to feel guilty about if you break, if you fail to fulfil. For the emphasis is really not on something to do. The emphasis is on the promises of God and how he will respond to us favourably if we do this thing. You see, there's commandments, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. Now those kinds of commandments, if you break those commandments, you should feel guilty. But a commandment which says, ask, seek, find, if you don't do it, there's no reason to feel guilty. You haven't sinned by not doing it. Because it's a commandment that really is a promise. Ask and be given, seek, you'll find, knock, it'll be open to you. It's really about the promises of God. The blanket promise of God is fantastic. In fact, it's so good it's hard to believe. Am I really to believe that like a genie in the bottle, God will give me whatever I request? Well, no, but God is not our servant or our slave to order around like a genie out of a bottle. Prayer is not commanding God. Prayer is requesting and asking God. It's petitioning God. Yet, God makes promises, and being faithful, he keeps his promises. Such as we can with certainty ask, knowing that we will receive. So, if we ask for forgiveness, we will be forgiven. If we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his sacrifice for our sins, we will be forgiven. That is part of the very promises of God that we will be forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a clear promise of God. So if you ask of that, it will be given to you. And God is more powerful than any genie in a bottle. Nearly all the jokes about the genies in the bottle jokes about the inability of the genie, aren't they? That's the the character of them. What was the one I heard the other day? I heard about three men, a boss and his two workers who found a a bottle and rubbed it, up comes the genie. The genie says, you've all got one request and one says, I want to be in the Bahamas sitting there on a beach. And the second one, and suddenly he's gone. And then the second one says, I want to go and visit Paris. And he's gone. And the third one, the boss says, I want them both back here. You see, the genie can't cope with that because the genie is just an automatum. It's just a machine mechanism. God is not like it. God's much more powerful than any genie to say nothing of much more, much more intelligent than any genie. What is being promised here? Is it a blank check? Whatever whoever asks will happen? No, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Put it in its context. He's training them to be the fisher, to be fishing for men. That's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Those who have been coming week by week may remember. And when they fish for men, they are fishing with men with a message of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. What will they be asking for? Well, they'll be asking for the very things that he's just taught them. So in chapter 6, verse 19... Chapter 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. 
And in chapter 6, verse 24, you cannot serve God and money. And in chapter 6, verse 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Or in chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So what do you think they're going to ask for? What do you think they're going to seek? They've just been told what to seek. And that's what God is promising, that if you seek, you will receive. And so the disciples at this point, when he says, seek and you will find, do you think they're going to say, I want to have a a really first-class camel? I really want to have, well, put it in modern terms, Rolls-Royce. Do I want to have an overseas trip to... That's not what they're to seek. That's not what is being promised. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, righteousness and the kingdom of heaven, they're the things to seek after. They're the things to pursue. More money? That's not the thing to pursue. That's the exact reverse of what is to pursue. So they will be asking God for things. But Jesus has already taught them what to ask. Look back to chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what they should ask for. And if they ask for these things, that's what they'll be given. That's the character of what... You've got to place Jesus' command, ask, seek, knock, in the context of the fact that these are promises. You'll receive, you will find, it'll be open to you. But the promises are in the context of the Sermon on the Mount when you've been told what not to seek for and what to seek for, what to ask for and what not to ask for. And the promises of the greatness of God, that he will not deny the good things that his children are asking for. For his disciples will not be asking for serpents or stones. They'll be asking for the good things that he has taught them to desire. Oh, I'd like more money. Who wouldn't like more money? Well, a sensible person, that's who. Do you think your life will be fuller and richer and better off if you just had more money and say, please, God, give me a million dollars? No, if you know God... God has the potential for giving you a billion dollars. But God will give you what is good for you. Do you think a billion dollars or a million dollars will be good for you? Here is the great trap of people who have won lotteries. When case studies have been done of lottery winners to see what their life is like one year, five years, ten years afterwards, it's nearly always a tale of misery. It actually doesn't make their life better off. It wasn't giving them good things that they desire. It was giving them the serpent. It was giving them a stone. God will not give us a serpent and stone. God will give us those good things for which we ask. In Luke's gospel, the parallel to this, it says, will not God give the Holy Spirit to whomever he asks? For that, of course, is the ultimate good thing that we're given. Why? God's own very spirit. And Should they, or should we, doubt these promises, he gives us the reasons for believing that God would grant such requests in verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives, everyone who seeks, finds, everyone who knocks will be opened. It's a promise to everybody, not just some. It's freely available for all. It's our promise. 
And the basis of our prayerful confidence in God. Sometimes people come and ask me to pray for them. I'm always happy to pray for them. And I hope that when people come and ask you, you're happy to pray for them. But sometimes I detect that people are actually asking me to pray for them because they think I've got an in with God. That's not the case. There's only one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for all. My prayers are no more efficacious than your prayers. I am no closer to God than you are. If you are in Christ Jesus, you can't get closer to God. And so there's no reason to come and ask me to pray as if I've got a message, I've got an open line with God that you haven't got. If you haven't got that open line with God, ask for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be born again because then you will have the direct open line to the Lord Jesus Christ, to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever, everyone who asks... And the one who seeks and the one who knocks, it's for anybody. For think of the negative argument that he uses. We human fathers are sinful and yet we still know how to give good gifts to our sons. Uh, Notice the assumption that Jesus has. It's all through the Bible, the same assumption, that is, that we're all sinful. It's what the world keeps trying to deny, even when it says things like, well... It's, it's human to err and divine to forgive. It's, you know, I can't help it, it's only human. The world actually knows that we are all sinful. It just doesn't like acknowledging that I personally am. But though we're all sinful, don't always do the right thing by our children, nonetheless, if our son asks us for bread, we don't give him a stone. If he asks for fish, we wouldn't think of giving them a serpent. And this negative argument is given to us in the contrast with the positive argument of verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will our heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Sinful fathers know how to give good gifts. Surely the heavenly perfect father will not do less. Rather, how much more will he give good gifts? The basis upon which we know that we can receive what we ask for is the very character of the Father in heaven. His character, his power, his desire to provide for us. Our relationship with him as his children. Now, my dear friends, if you don't know God as your Father, if you don't have that personal knowledge of him that comes from being born again, then you won't have that confidence to ask, seek and knock. And you won't have the confidence in the promise that you will indeed find and the door will be open to you and you will be given. But also if we don't know him as our father and don't listen to his son in the Sermon on the Mount, if we ignore the teaching of of his and the salvation that he comes to bring, we will not know the good things we're asking for. We will ask for earthly treasures and money and then complain that the promise is not true for we've not received or worse, we have received and we won't be satisfied. Then Jesus comes to the main body of the Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion with the command that is a conclusion. Verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Uh, Most people leave off the first word of this command, so, uh, or therefore, or thus. If they see it, they want to know, so what? 
Well, so is the shows that this is a summary. This is the what has gone, this is the conclusion of what has gone before it. But what's a summary of? It's not a summary of verses 11, 7 to 11, nor a summary of verses 1 to 11. Though judge others as you would be judged by them, verses 1 and 2 does sound like verse 12. It could be a summary of the section from chapter 6, verse 19 following, but it seems to me that it's a summary of the whole sermon from right back in chapter 5, verse 17. Do you think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The reference to the law and the prophets at 5, verse 17 and 7, verse 12 are the kind of brackets in which everything else is occurring in the body of the Sermon on the Mount. From back in 5.17, the disciples are first challenged to be living differently, to live by the law, to live by the prophets. And now you're being given the summary conclusion of what it means to live by the law and the prophets. And it's a simple maxim. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Simple to say, very difficult to do, isn't it? That's another part. Yet it's not taught by Jesus as an absolute of life like uh, Kant's categorical imperative if you're a philosopher, or like the average non-Christian Aussie who will do to you what he wants done to him. That is, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. But it's a simple maxim to apply to everyday life in a million situations, especially where there's no specific law or rule. Would I like them to do this to me? No. Well, I won't do it to them. Would I want them to do this for me? Yes. Well, then I'll do it for them. I see a piece of rubbish that someone's dropped on the ground. Would I like them to pick it up for me if I dropped it on the ground? Yeah. Well, I'd do it for them. It, it covers a whole range of things of life, doesn't it? If I spend my life thinking in terms of a wonderful rule of thumb to operate upon and to teach our children. But Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying that this simple maxim is the law and the prophets. See, in chapter 5, verse 16, he's challenged his disciples to so let their light shine before men that people will see their good deeds and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And that is spelled out for us in chapter 5, verse 17, that these God-glorifying deeds will be fulfilling the law and the prophets. And he's been explaining for these several chapters what the law and the prophets will mean for them. He hasn't relaxed a jot or a tittle. He's been teaching it with vigour and originality. And he's shown how different will be their obedience to that of the Pharisees who are always looking for the loopholes, the hypocrites who pretend to keep the law but in actual fact are avoiding and minimising it all the time. And he's been showing that the law involves loving God with your whole heart and your neighbour as yourself. And so he concludes, this is the law and the prophets, to treat your neighbour as yourself. Thus the sermon shows how to be disciples in a complex world. For that is what they're going to be. They're not being removed from the world, they're being left in the world. But how do you live in this world as a light? How do you live in this world as a city on a hill? How do you live in this world as a salty characteristic to this world? 
Well, you'll live with persecution. That's got to be your expectation. But you will live a quite different life, a different character of life. So Jesus tells them that they're in for persecution and hatred, not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing and upholding the right thing, like the prophets of old, preaching and living righteousness, the righteousness of the law. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Their task is to call people into the kingdom of heaven. But they themselves must live in that kingdom. And it will mean that they will stand out as different, so different, that people won't like them. So it's important to understand what the kingdom is like in its obedience to the law. And when you hear it spelled out like this, you may ask, well, who's worthy? Who could do all these things that we've looked at in the last couple of months? Who would have the wisdom to be able to, how could I do it? And Jesus says, fear not. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. It's really simple. Love your neighbour as yourself. Well, friends, do you know God as your father? <laughs> like this. For your father will give you all the good gifts of the kingdom of heaven so that you can live a life that will bring glory to him and salvation to other people. That's what's being promised, and it's a great promise. And that's what we've been commanded to, and it's a great commandment. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbour as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. This day we praise you for his teaching, for his summarising of the law, for his teaching its application in our lives. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to be able to live in such a way as to bring glory to you and live in such a way that we will live in fellowship and harmony and love in the service of other people, that we may love you with all our heart and love our neighbour as ourselves. And Heavenly Father, we pray for those amongst us who do not know you yet as, your, as their father, that you would so give to them your spirit that they too might know that Jesus is Lord and you are their father. And we ask for them in Jesus' name. Amen.